Good evening to you. Ezra chapter 7 this evening, our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now and the easy to spot and they've got Bibles. You just get their attention and I'll be happy to get one into your hands and always a lot easier to follow along on the Sunday night uh, with an open Bible on your lap. Just want to, as we're uh, getting set here this evening, remind everyone, some of you don't come to the morning services. And uh, so the chili cook-off coming up this Saturday, great day of fellowship and, and a great, great time. So be aware of that. Flyers like this are out in the information counter in the fellowship hall. Uh, tables are out there to uh, set up in order to uh, buy tickets and, and get involved. So uh, familiarize yourself with it after the service if this is uh, all uh, new to you. Let me get my uh, stopwatch going as if that never means anything. It just, no, it does. I just like. As we come to chapter 7, between chapters 6 and 7, there is a uh, gap of time of about 60 years. And for those of you who are kind of exact on that, the exact number of years is 58 years uh, between chapter 6 and 7. And we get into chapter 7, chapter 7 through 10 in the book, we really head into a, another phase of things related to the book, and it's a record of the second return, uh, a second return of exiles uh, from Babylon, but Babylon at this point in uh, human history is no longer the great empire that it once was. Babylon is now a uh, mere province uh, within the Persian Empire. And so uh, this man by the name of Ezra leads a second group of Jews to return uh, to the land. Zerubbabel is we, the main focus. He was the main focus of the first six chapters. He came to uh, Jerusalem in 536 B.C. under Cyrus. Ezra comes in 458 uh, B.C. under Artaxerxes. Now, Zerubbabel, uh, we don't read anything more about him now in the rest of the book, probably uh, dead at this particular point in time and uh, has uh, and has been dead for a considerable length of time when Ezra came to Jerusalem. The reason that's of some significance to us is that when we get into chapters uh, 9 and 10, we're going to see that uh, already great sin had been reintroduced among uh, those that had returned in the first uh, return to uh, Jerusalem. And I think, boy, what happened to Zerubbabel was a lot of time has passed and his influence has probably passed off the scene. The first return had occurred for the purpose of the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, the second return occurred for a, a different reason. Even though the people had come back into the land, they had rebuilt uh, the temple. They had reestablished temple worship there uh, in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Jeshua the high priest. They weren't living a life of complete obedience to God's word. Things weren't done, being done according to the letter of, of God's law. And so Ezra's task was now to come a little bit later to teach them the word of God to the law of Moses concerning what temple worship was supposed to look like and then also how the law was to apply to their own lives and then to 
make sure that they obeyed the law uh, of, of Moses. And so he comes now to Jerusalem, as we're going to see tonight, with the purpose of making the law of God uh, the standard in the lives of, of his people on a national level, on an individual uh, level. Incidentally, for those of you, uh, it's interesting, you know, each time you go through the scriptures, another piece of the puzzle falls into place, this, 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 it all comes together. That's why it's important sometimes if you're kind of new to the Bible and you come to a Sunday night and, and you look and say, oh my, how much information was that? I hated history in school. And then I came in and he sounds like a history teacher. And I'll never get my mind around this. You cry uncle and you give up. Don't do that. Because the Bible really is a living book. And so as we go through it the first time or when you're reading at home and you're reading through it, it seems like hardly anything's sticking. But something is sticking. You're understanding a little bit. And then the next time, God builds on that for understanding a little bit more and so forth. It's interesting uh, to realize that it's during this 60-year uh, time gap between uh, verses 6 and 7 here uh, in the book of Ezra that all of the events of the book of Esther took place. So it starts to just fall into our mind a little bit to know what events kind of clustered around one another. And so after the... Now, after these things, verse one, in uh, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of uh, Marioth, the son of uh, Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, uh, the son of that bookie, he's so cute. <laughs> what a name. I'm probably mispronouncing. It's probably, you know, some big masculine thing instead of something we would name our stuffed animal when we were two. So the son of little bookie, the son of uh, Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. And in your mind, what you want to do is notice the first name. That was listed in verse one, the name of Ezra, and then the final name that is listed there in verse five, it is the name of Aaron. So here is Ezra. He is a, uh, a priest. I'm going to find out he's a scribe in just a moment, but he is a priest. So he's coming to Jerusalem to teach them the law of Moses. He's going to instruct them in the realm of worship. And so one of the things they would be questioning is, what are your credentials for doing this? And his lineage goes all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest in the history of the Jewish people. And so he has just impeccable credentials for coming and instructing them in, in the area of worship. And so here's the title of the book. The title of the book is Ezra. Finally, we get to ch uh, chapter 7, and it's like, ladies and gentlemen, here is Ezra, the long-awaited Ezra, and it begins with this genealogy for that purpose. In the book of Leviticus, God's law declared that the priests and the Levites, but here speaking about priests that, and of this lineage, that they were, they were instructed and called by God to teach the word of God in terms of how it applied to individual lives and the worship of the Lord at the temple. And so these are his 
uh, credentials. And so he comes from Babylon. It's the uh, Persian Empire at this particular point. He comes from the province of of Babylon. We're told this, Ezra, verse 6, came up from Babylon. Further description of him, very significantly, is that not only did he have the proper lineage, but he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And so this again established his qualifications, not only the proper bloodline, but that he was a skilled scribe. Now, in in Jesus's time, we read about the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, the kind of Jewish religious establishment that was leading the Jews away from a proper worship of God and even understanding of God. And uh, Jesus uh, continually uh, he had to deal with them as foes. They were opposing him all the time. And and Jesus one time in a denunciation of them, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He's talking about this group known as the scribes. Uh, So the scribes were kind of a defiled group by Jesus's time, but not at the time of Ezra. And what a scribe was in those days. Remember, they didn't have printing presses. If you had. Not only if you had a Bible on your lap, it'd be in the form of a scroll. But if you had any book, if you had any literature, uh, uh, it, it certainly would weed out all of the nonsense, waste of time magazines that are printed today and all. If you had to print it by hand, everything was printed by hand. And it was a scribe who had the ability to know the language, but then the ability to take and here is one copy of the law and then to take that and without missing a word or anything and then make another copy of the law. And one of the things that would happen is when you are writing day in and day out as a part of your life's work at making copies of the scriptures, then you're going to learn the word very, very well. And so the scribes were not only not merely copyists, but they also had a way of becoming uh, very, very deep in the scriptures, their understanding of the scriptures. So it wasn't just, okay here, 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 not for not for Ezra anyway. He was a skilled scribe. And so he's taking and learning the word of God while he's uh, operating as a copyist and as a scribe and making more copies uh, of of the scriptures. And so. When he comes on the scene, he is completely knowledgeable in the word of God. He he knew it inside and out, upside and downside, very, very skilled in his understanding. Not only when it talks about him as a skilled scribe, not only did he know the word of God very well, but he also knew how it ought to apply uh, to a person's life and how it ought to apply uh, to the people of God in general. And so this has been his life's work. He is skilled. He's been very, very good at it. And so he's fully prepared for reading, explaining, applying the word of God to God's people in a new context. You say, well, what's the new context? Jerusalem is Jerusalem. So he's going to go there and he's going to teach God's people the word of God in Jerusalem. I mean, that's where all the all all of the teachers uh, taught before the Babylonian captivity. Yes, but they taught the word of God prior to the Babylonian captivity to a group of people whose context was different. 
They were under a series of kings that had been appointed by God. They were, they were under their own rule. They, uh, they were self-determining in Israel at that time. But they're not that anymore. In Jerusalem, when Ezra goes to them, they're a very small minority. A small racial minority. They're a very small religious minority. And, and they are under Persian rule. They are not uh, self-determining as a people at this point. And so the question becomes, how in the world does the word of God apply to us? How do we express it? How do we do this or not do this in the light of the fact that we're not under a Jewish king anymore? And he had the ability to come in and to teach them uh, those nuances. And this introduction, when a strong introduction of Ezra here, I think it's intended uh, for us for the rest of the book and the rest of the book completely reinforces it uh, that every time we think of Ezra and if you don't take anything else away from the Bible study tonight you just for the the book of Ezra this is the one thing I'd want you to have come to your mind every time there's a mention of the name Ezra to equate his name with the law of the Lord he was a man of the Bible he was a man of the book, and we're going to see that through four chapters, not tonight, uh, but over the next couple of Sunday nights. It's interesting that he had a love for the word of God that was so great and a love for God's people to know God's word that was so great that he's willing to take a 900 mile journey that's going to take him four months to be able to teach the Word of God in Jerusalem. He's going to leave Babylon in order uh, to do that. So here you've got a man who has, not only has tremendous knowledge of the Scripture, but he's not just a mere academic. He has a great heart for God's people and a great desire uh, to teach the Word of God. Great intellect, but great, great zeal for God's Word uh, coupled with that. I think that one of the things, and I want to just spend a, a few minutes tonight talking to those of you who have a love for the Word of God, which I assume you have coming out on Sunday nights, and then very specific, specifically to those of you who have a calling by God to teach His Word. And Ezra is a great study in that, in that subject. And, and Ezra teaches us here that as a Bible study, whether we teach uh, children in our home, whether we teach children in the children's ministry, whether we teach young adults, whether we teach adults, uh, the, no matter what our area in which God has called us to teach the word of God, the importance of going deep, deep, deep in our understanding of the Bible and to determine to know the Bible. Uh, better than you know anything else in life. It's worthy of, of that kind of a commitment and that kind of discipline. It's not enough. We should never have the standard where it's like, okay, I know enough of the Bible to get by. I know enough of, a, of the Bible to put two or three points together and kind of do a song and a dance and, and get out of the room. Uh, in teaching the Word of God, we want to know the Bible very, very deeply. I remember, uh, well, let me say this about that. I think that no matter what our calling is as Christians, whether you might be called and gifted as an evangelist, 
uh, a prophet. You may have the gift of helps. You may have the gift of mercy. All the different kinds of callings and the gifts that God gives each of us individually as Christians. A knowledge of the scripture is the one thing that you that to build that into your life will never be a waste of time. So somebody comes up to me as they regularly do and they say, I, I don't know exactly what God has called me to, to do. I don't know what that is. And and yet I want to be in preparation for that. So without knowing if I'm a pastor, or a teacher, or I'm a prophet or I, I, I'm going to be used in this capacity or that capacity. I don't know what it's going to be. What can I do without knowing that to prepare myself for the calling? Learn the word of God. Go deep into the Word of God. No matter what your calling and your gifting is, a knowledge of the Scriptures is going to serve you magnificently. And you will need that knowledge of the Scriptures. I always tell people the same thing. It's a good, wherever, I don't know where you get it online now, but wherever they've got it loaded up, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's 5000 series, go through that. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was, worked as a, a cable splicer. And so I'd be working on dead cables half the time. And some of them are 1,800 pair, 2,400 pair. You're in that manhole for who knows how many days putting all that together and all. And then you just move to the next manhole. This is a very glamorous life. And trying to keep water out of everything and all. But, I mean, this is what you do. And I, and I would just put on Chuck Smith tapes on the 5,000 series and boom, boom, boom. And sometimes, you know, you're in the middle of something. You can't give it your highest concentration. Other times you can. But we're absorbing it. And what I, did, I went through the Bible with, with uh, Chuck three and a half times by tape without ever opening the Bible. Just going into the ear gate on things. And he established within me, the Spirit of God did, a systematic theology and an understanding of the Bible before I knew what a systematic theology was. And so just to learn the Bible, and I, I personally think Chuck's the finest Bible teacher in the world. I'm sorry if you think you're a better one and you're in this room or listening to that somewhere, but I just do. Here's why I do. The thing that, I, that gets me about Chuck is he's, he's not an entertainer. And he isn't like super charismatic and he feels like he has to carry the room. So in that sense, he and I are very different. (laughs) The thing that Chuck does is this. He opens up a passage and he begins someplace and he ends someplace and it all makes sense in between. And when you walk away, the one thing you walk away with is you say, I know that passage of the Bible like I've never known it before. I understand that. And that's kind of the funny thing about Sunday mornings around here a little bit. You're all sick. You come here on Sunday nights to listen to me try and teach the word of God. But sometimes people come in on Sunday morning. They're looking for a song and dance. Come on, bring out the prophesying poodles. Let's go. Let's keep this thing moving, you know. And what the people don't understand is that all I care about is that the word of God is brought forth in such a way that a person understands that passage of the Bible, that maybe for the rest of their life, that passage becomes a friend to them. And if they ever ended up shipwrecked on a deserted island 
with only their Bible, that they could turn to those passages and self-feed. They could understand it on their own. That's all I care about related to the Word of God. And Chuck has that down in, in just a masterful, masterful uh, way. You take in terms of like his Sunday mornings, which are kind of, this is my Chuck Sermon speech that I've been waiting 25 years to give. I tell people that are wanting to grow in, in their gift of teaching, I say, grab those Sunday morning messages that he teaches. Of course, he teaches maybe five chapters in the evening and he pulls a, a topical kind of textual passage out of there and he teaches on that. So how does he work all of that into a half hour? And, and yet he does it. When he was here with, with Love Song, I got a chance to go out with a, a couple of others that he was traveling with out to dinner before we headed out to dinner. Just, I, don't, I don't call Chuck on the phone all the time. I would if God told me to. I figure he's got a lot of problems and, and things to take care of and all those, so I stay out of his way. But I said to him, you know, I said, Chuck, all my Christian life, I've been able to eat those Sunday morning messages like candy one after another. I'm not talking about the fact that they don't have substance or something like that. But I, there's just pop them one right after another for hours. I could listen to them. And I said, you know, there's, there, is a, there is a prophetic something behind those Sunday mornings. And Chuck operates from this basis of when he gets up behind the, the uh, pulpit or the, uh, the, the holy desk, he gets up and he has within his mind that which I have received from the Lord, I deliver to you now. And so he teaches the word of God. He feels like God has given that to him. And then he delivers that message. And I would tell anyone that believes you have a gift and a calling to teach to just, again, go online, fair, find out where these things are, the MP3s and all that, and just listen. Listen to the messages for your own blessing. But then watch how he edits. Watch what he includes. Watch what he leaves out. Watch what the Spirit has made important to him. And then watch the point that he leaves you with and how he leaves you with one point and not 70 so you forget all of all of them. It's a great, a, a great, great uh, resource that way. And, and so the, uh, the knowledge of the scriptures and, of course, him raised in the scriptures, and it certainly didn't help, it doesn't uh, hurt that he has a photographic memory. And the Bible tells me not to envy. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. He, he can take and, and just by the page of the Bible in his mind, right before him, and he's sitting and just quote entire chapters of Revelation. And it's just a beautiful gift. I remember in this whole thing of, of really making and, and, uh, and, and giving the due diligence and discipline to learning the scriptures. I remember uh, listening to a pastor's conference, and there was an internationally known. Uh, Bible teacher, very, very respected uh, Bible teacher. I would say he would probably be considered one of the top five uh, to ten Bible teachers in the whole world, even yet today. His name is absolutely a household name in, in, in Christianity. And I remember that uh, he was asked during a panel discussion at a pastor's conference how he came to such a, a great depth uh, of 
of knowledge and understanding concerning the Scriptures. And I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat. I was a new Christian, so, okay, he's going to give me the secret. <laughs> His answer was interesting. He said, well, here's what it is. He said, I keep myself seated in the chair at my desk in my study longer than other people. I mean, it wasn't like, is, I mean, doesn't this happen by drizzled, vazzled, wazzled Rome? Time for this one to come home. I mean, he said, you know what? It's just hard work. It's just diligence, long hours and hard work to go deep in the scriptures that way. And, and he had done that. I like a famous quote that's uh, ascribed to Michelangelo. And uh, he said, if you knew, uh, concerning his being a genius and, and, and all, uh, he's, he said, if you knew how much work went into it, you wouldn't call it genius. So we look at these things and we just think, oh, it's just a gift. It's just this, this is effortless. And he knew the work that went behind it. It reminds me, of, speaking of the subject of genius, lesser known quote, uh, by former NFL quarterback Joe Theismann. He said, nobody in football should be called a genius. He said, a genius is a guy like Norman Einstein. <laughs> uh, Joe, that's Albert Einstein. <laughs> I don't know if he was mic'd at the moment, but... But that importance of developing a deep working knowledge of the scriptures. You know, I think is a good exercise to do. We'll get back to the text in a moment. I think in pre preparation for the ministry of the word, it's you can do it. You can have the radio on. Um, you can listen to conversations that are going on and maybe a group kind of setting. Or maybe you're watching the news on television or something like that. A great way to develop a working knowledge of the scriptures would be in whatever the conversation is taking place and ask yourself, what would I say from the Bible to address what's going on right there? The Bible says this would be God's answer. I mean, that's the thing. That was a great thing about Larry King. If you wanted to really get tuned up on that, he'd ask these questions and people and you, and you could go ahead and answer it. Well, the Bible says this related to that. You can't be about everything that gets asked, but it's a good exercise to just get used to that. What does the Bible say? The Bible says the Bible says the Bible says until we're thinking like the Bible or we say, boy, I don't know what I would say. Uh, and I don't know what the Bible says related to that. And then we learn it and then we know it uh, for the next time. And so it, it, uh, it I think it's helpful and and helpful in, in establishing a working knowledge of the scriptures, which is basically just knowing how to apply it in the nitty gritty of daily life. I'd also like to say concerning Ezra, as we take note of the fact that he was willing to take on a, a teaching assignment that involved a 900 mile journey uh, across the Via Maris in the Middle East, <laughs> pretty arid. I mean, there are oases along the way and the rivers and all. But a great, uh, great, great example from Ezra in 
taking every opportunity that you can to teach. I mean, here he is. He travels four months for a teaching opportunity. There's only one way to get experience, and that's by doing it. Now, I'm no Ezra, that's for sure. But that's how I ended up in Modesto. I didn't know Modesto existed before I started coming here. That's how insulated you can get in Napa. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but that's what I was like. There's Napa, Vallejo, and then uh, Europe. (laughs) So I didn't know anything about Disneyland, about the rest of California and all. We were a bunch of young, new Christians, very, very young in the Lord. And they had started a Bible study here, and they had started a Bible study in Annapolis. So they called uh, a couple of us, three of us, I think, into the room, and we're all just chomping at the bit to go teach the Word of God. We didn't have anything to say, but we're ready to start trying to do it. I said, all right, one week you go to Annapolis and teach, the next week you go to Modesto and teach, and the next week you're off. And so they put me on Modesto and never took me off it. Three and a half years old in the Lord. And I started teaching the Bible here in Modesto. I'll tell you, it was, it, was, uh, it was no better and easier for me than it was for anybody that was listening then. I remember one time I was teaching through First Peter. I was just thinking about it today. Teaching through First Peter, and I drove all the way from Napa to here, which is about a two-hour drive. And I got out of the car. I'd, I would go over to this hamburger shop that was over... Uh, Bob's Big Boy or something that was in where, you know, Boston Market is now. And then I would change into my clothes and then go to teach the Bible study. And I would read through my notes before I'd go in to teach it and open up my Bible to read my notes. I forgot my notes. Now, I don't have a song and a dance in me. And so I got up there and and I didn't know what I was. I didn't know what the point, the whole everything. I mean, so new and everything. And so I just started to bluster, just try to, okay, here and this and with great authority and all like this. And and I tried that for about five minutes. It cured me for life and uh, and the whole thing. And then finally, I just looked at him and I said, I forgot my notes. I don't know what I'm talking about. And we closed up up the service. Now you say, why would a guy even try again after being that stupid and that embarrassing? I'll tell you why. This is why you've got to be patient with teachers. Remember God spoke to Ezekiel. He said, I'm going to send you out. It's going to be a pretty tough audience, my people. <laughs> he said, I'm going to give you a forehead of flint. I'm going to just make you a bonehead. I'm just going to make your head so so strong. That I mean, nothing is going to discourage you. And so you say, why in the world would anybody try after such a humiliation again? If the calling, you've got to keep doing it. So sometimes you sit in a Bible study and you listen and say, oh, my, what? how could that guy just keep trying to do this? And it's a curse that's on their life, a calling of God on there. And they just keep doing it and doing it until maybe we grow a little bit in it. And so... I think it's important for you to realize, take every opportunity to teach, drive where you have to to teach, um, what, and don't wait for somebody to find you or to discover you. You don't have to be a self-promoter. 
But just let people know, I think God's got this call on my life and I'd like to get a chance to see whether it's really there or not and to begin to step out into uh, that calling. And I think that sometimes, you know, especially as Calvary Chapel's been around now for so many decades and all, and and even in the body of Christ as a whole where we look and say, okay, do you have a, a doctorate? Do you have a degree in theology? What seminary did you did you graduate from? This kind of thing. And we begin to think in our minds that we've got to have a doctorate or something like that to begin to teach the word of God. And we talk ourselves out of it. It's the calling. Not one of those apostles had a degree. Spurgeon had no degree. G. Campbell Morgan had no degree. We're not elevating ignorance, but there's other ways to learn than seminary. And today, the access to information and teaching and good, solid things on the Internet and, and electronically is really just astonishing. And so don't wait around until somebody discovers you accidentally. Ezra sought the opportunity, and you can seek that opportunity as, as well. And so then we're told here in verse 6 that the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. So apparently Ezra made a request to, uh, to the king here uh, for uh, something. We don't know what it is right here, but we do know when we get down to verse 25. And apparently his request was, uh, dear king. I have a burden to go back to Israel and teach the Jews from the word of God about how to worship God properly at the temple and then how to obey God in their own private lives and to establish that in your kingdom. And when this king heard that that was the proposition, the request, he granted them uh, the, uh, the request to make sure that God's law was being observed, observed by the Jews there back in uh, in in the land. And so here is Ezra. He's got this. And I think every teacher of God's word needs to have it. He's got a, a passion for the word of God. He's got a great, great faith in the power of God's word to impact people. And he's got this absolutely dominating desire for everyone to hear the word of God and have it impact their lives as it had impacted uh, his life. Uh, as well. And so and that's typically what happens when a person has a gift to teach. They're not satisfied with just learning it for themselves. That that truth that they've learned has so impacted their life, so living for them that they want everybody to experience that same thing through the word of God. And so uh, they'll they'll get into that teaching. So this was his his desire. And then we're told that some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers and the Nethanim, they came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of uh, King Artaxerxes. Oops, I don't want to uh, miss this. So this is the group that then uh, now travels with him to uh, make this journey. And we don't know anything more about uh, them, you know, beyond this at the moment. All we know is that they have the same heart related to the word of God in God's people that uh, uh, Ezra had. Notice at the end of verse six there where that phrase is according to the hand of the Lord God, uh, 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 according to the hand of the Lord, his God upon him. And so here is uh, Ezra's acknowledgement and recognition of the hand of God, the activity of God uh, being involved in him being allowed to go to uh, Jerusalem. Now, this phrase or some version of that phrase is going to be repeated 
six times and these four chapters having to do with Ezra. And so it really becomes Ezra, Ezra, uh, his biographical statement. And Ezra was one of these guys that just recognized the hand of God behind all of his blessings. He just did. And it's a great way to live life. You get uh, twice the mileage out of your blessings because first you experience the blessing and all that's involved in that. And then when you recognize it came from God's hand and you give him praise for it, then you get to enjoy it a second time. That's the way that he lived life. He recognized that, as James put it, every good and perfect gift comes down uh, from God the Father into his life. And so this great characteristic uh, of his life to recognize this about the Lord and then to give him praise uh, for it. And Ezra, verse 8, came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. So again, recognizing the grace of God, it was a four-month journey. For Ezra had prepared his heart, number one, to seek the law of the Lord, number two, and to do it, and number three, and to teach statutes, statutes and ordinances in uh, Israel. And so three great characteristics, again, as we look at this uh, area of teaching, he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So it would be an understatement to say that Ezra loved the word of God. He absolutely loved the word of God. And uh, this is the description of a man whose life is just dominated and influenced by uh, the word of God. So he was a man who understood the importance of the place of the word of God and the life of God's people. And that is a sense in leaders. That sense is waning in our generation. I hate to say it. I hate to observe it. But it is waning. Uh, leaders in the body of Christ who recognize the vital importance, the place that the word of God plays in the life uh, of 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 the Christian. That's something that's uh, slipping uh, uh, away little by little by little as time goes on. I think that any pastor or church leadership who chooses to de-emphasize the teaching of the word of God in a church in order to emphasize something else, I don't care what that something else is, it can be anything else, then they don't understand the importance of the Word of God and the place that it is to play in, in the child of God. And so when I hear about this kind of thing, I realize that the pastor and the church leadership have never had the Word of God do a living miracle in their lives because once you have experienced the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the Holy Spirit that he gives us through this living word, this Bible, then you would never want to deny that experience to another Christian. You would want every Christian to experience that. And, and so th this move away from the word of God is a dangerous one. And it, and it speaks, it, it speaks to something wrong in the heart of a leader or leaders when it does occur. 
I think of Jesus in his ministry when um, the Sadducees came to him and they tried to trip him up with it. The Sadducees were the rationalists of their day, the religious rationalists. We would call them religious liberals. The Pharisees were the uh, kind of conservative block of Judaism. But the Sadducees were the, the, the uh, Jewish liberals and the rationalists of their day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They certainly didn't believe in resurrection. And Jesus was always teaching about uh, all, all of those things and performing miracles. But they really had a beef with him on his teaching concerning resurrection. That is that there is a life on the other side of this life. So they decided to make fun of him in public because they're really smart guys. See, when you say, you know, uh, when you say the Sadducees were the rationalists of their day and, and that they wouldn't believe anything that wouldn't fit within the confines and understanding of their mind. So if they couldn't understand it, they wouldn't believe in it and just say, wow, man, that's that's amazing. You know, those are the smartest people in the whole world. But essentially, it's it's the worship of the limitation of the human mind. The human mind is very, very limited. So they come to the Bible and they won't worship anything beyond the limitations of their mind. You're going to have a problem with the Bible because the Bible isn't about the limitations of my mind. The Bible is about the fact that the God that we serve has no limitation at all. Why would I impose my severe limitations on God and consider myself smart for doing it? Because if it can fit in my mind, it's smaller than my mind. If it's smaller than my mind, it's smaller than me. Why would I worship something smaller than me and then have everybody think I'm a genius for doing it? Think I'm Herbert, uh, 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 what's his name? Einstein, Herbert Einstein, or whatever Joe said. I like Joe. So they come with their question. Jesus, there was this man, and he married a woman, and he died. And he, he was one of seven sons in the family. So according to the law of kinsman redeemer, the next oldest son married her as well. He died. And then the third married. He died. And then all the way through until all seven were married to her. And all of them died and she survived. Check the falafel recipe. (laughs) So they make fun and they say, all right, in the resurrection, who's going to have her as wife? It never occurred to them that when we go to heaven, we're not going to be married. Now, that's good news to some people and it's bad news to other people. But we are married in heaven. There's the there's the groom and then there's the bride of Christ. That's that's the whole thing. This whole representation that we've been doing of that, that gets lost in the glory of what we're going to be in the middle of face to face up there. So they pose this thing and the idea is to make them look stupid in front of the crowd. And Jesus said something to them. He said, you do err. Uh oh. Did you do err? Number one, not knowing the scriptures. And not knowing the power of. Of God. Those are two mistakes. They didn't know the scriptures. And they didn't know the power of God behind the scriptures. 
And when I see someone move a church or people away from an emphasis upon the word of God, its place in developing Christian maturity, I look and I think to myself, do they know the scriptures and do they know the power of God? Because once you know the scriptures and once you have experienced the power of God through the scriptures, you will never move away from the word of God. You will never want to deny that experience to anyone. And so the power, the realization that is this word is taught. God stands behind this Bible. We can claim every promise, make it our own. And that this Bible isn't something that we read and we study independent of God. He is faithful to everything that's found in it. The funny thing kind of happens, I've noticed through the years too, is that oftentimes God will build a very great influential church in a community and he'll do it because of the emphasis upon the word of God and the Holy Spirit and these things, but upon the word of God. And then when it goes time for that pastor to retire or move off into other things and all, so often the temptation is to replace him, not with a teacher, but an administrator, a maintainer, someone who does not have his predecessor's history and respect for the word of God. And then that church is in all kinds of trouble. You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And the beautiful thing about Ezra here is he knew both uh, of those things. And so we look at him, and first he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. In other words, the things of God and his word non-negotiable. But he sought the law of the Lord. In other words, again, he determined to become a great student of the word of God, to know it uh, very, very well. Uh, so I, I used to have time uh, a million years ago to read uh, some George MacDonald books on, uh, you know, the Christian fiction and very interesting. I enjoyed it. And uh, but you even read about. English pastors 150 years ago in England and they would take these new pastors and what they would do is they would send them these these very rural churches to pastor. And so they go out there and they would pastor and the idea would be is because the congregation would be so small, they could take care of the details related to the church and then they would have tons of extra time to just study the word. Have the candles going, the light going, study the word for the uh, two, three, four years or whatever as they were over that small kind of parish. And what the, what the structure understood in all of this is that th- these young men would have this period of time in, in their ministries to, in the necessity of going deep into the word of God, the seeking of the word of God, and the recognition that that at this time in life they had the time to commit to it, but later on, as God would move them to another place or maybe to another place, they would never have that time again. So the idea was to go deep in the Scriptures. And then, then something would happen. There would be evidence of the calling. They would get moved to a larger church. Now there would be demands on their time that weren't there previously. They wouldn't quite have the time that they once had uh, to maybe uh, put into those things, but the foundation had been laid. And, and one of the things that we fight against in this culture, and it's such a rapid culture, this culture is way too fast for me. 
And, and I, I have a Verizon phone. I've got to go through like four letters to send a text to somebody. So my texts are like, yup, or nope, or whatever. There's these little short things. But you get all the gadgets and all the everything, and, and, and then especially when you're a little bit younger, and I mean, you, you don't even know how much you're running on adrenaline, how fast, how connected you are. And so where do you get that downtime with a, with a calling of God on your life in this way to go deep in the things of the Lord? Well, thankfully, there's an upside to electronics and technology as well, because the access that we have to outstanding Materials for learning the Bible on the Internet or on websites is just huge. I used to I used to fight with other elders at Calvary Chapel of Napa to get a cassette tape that I hadn't listened to already. They were so rare back then. Now it's just dinosaur technology. But if we get like one new tape by Walter Martin, okay, let's flip for who gets it first or by Chuck Smith or whoever. And now which you can download into an iPod and grow in. So there's advantages uh, to, to this, but there's no excuse for uh, anyone not becoming a great student of, of God's word today. So he sought the law of the Lord. And then the second thing is that he did it. And that's such a key in teaching. No hypocrisy. Uh, you can know the word of God and you can teach it. But if a person isn't living it, you know what happens? God just comes along as Holy Spirit, who we've sung about tonight. He just says, I'm not going to participate. You can have the greatest sermons in the whole wide world. You can have the three points, the final, the illustrate, the whole deal, the window, the whole. I mean, you've got to study it, and the whole thing ought to save the whole universe with the logic and everything that's in that thing. And then not, no one's even budged by it. Because if the life isn't consistent with the message, the Holy Spirit just says, why am I going to bring a whole bunch of people in here to develop a trust in you when I know it's all phony baloney? And so he was a guy that knew the word of God, but he also obeyed the word of God as well. And then we're also told that uh, not only did he obey the word of God uh, there, but then he taught the statutes to other. And again, as I said, that desire that a teacher will have then to impart that knowledge to others. And then the decree was given by Artaxerxes uh, to Ezra to take to Jerusalem in, uh, in order to begin his ministry there. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. That's quite a title, isn't it? That's a, that's a big old thing to have on your desk, but it was all true of him and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. Uh, you know, in the old days, and especially in those days, the Middle Eastern kings, they had a little bit of bluster. So they put all these, you know, kind of uh, highfalutin names to them. But when Artaxerxes says that he's the king of kings, he was a king of kings. Uh, as a Persian empire, he was over many, many kingdoms. And so Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. So this is tremendous. He gives permission to every Jew 
in, under his uh, under his in his realm that they can now they have permission to return to Jerusalem if they like to if they want to fabulous I would have jumped at that and whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors here's the purpose to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand Ezra wanted to go to Jerusalem wanted to go to Israel see the condition of the people and uh, in, in, in the condition of the land running it through the grid of looking at it in the light of the word of God and that's how you discover uh, the true condition of anything is to assess it in the light of the word of God and so that's That's what he wanted to do and he was given permission to do. And whereas you are to carry silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling place, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So they were given a large amount of money and wealth to also take uh, to Jerusalem to further the work of the Lord. We notice in verse 15 uh, that much of that wealth was given by the king himself and his seven uh, counselors. But the children of Israel, they also uh, jumped in. The ones that didn't want to leave Babylon to go to, to Jerusalem, uh, they also gave wealth. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. And now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and to offer them on the altar of the house uh, of your God in Jerusalem. Use this money to buy uh, animals for sacrifice. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, uh, do it according to the will of your God. In other words, don't send me a letter asking me what to do with the leftovers. You seek your God and do what he tells you. And also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver them full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, Pray uh, and pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasures who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra, the priest and scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently. And so he's going to open up the treasury uh, for Ezra to have the financial resources that he needs to accomplish his his mission and so he's given a budget up to a certain amount so Artaxerxes said give him up to 100 talents of silver excuse me that's uh, three and three quarters tons of silver Uh, also 100 cores of wheat 600 bushels uh, 100 baths of oil uh, 600 gallons and then also uh, salt without prescribed limit, which was a big deal. You can't live without salt. The, the missions team come back from ministering in Austria and on their way back out to get to Munich to fly out. They stopped at Salzburg. And Salzburg is named after salt because it was in Salzburg that the salt trade was concentrated in Europe at a particular point in time. And if you owned salt, you own something more valuable than gold because you can live without gold, but you can't live without salt. 
for any length of time. And so cities became fabulously wealthy. People did, too, uh, if they had access to salt. And so for him to say, <coughs> excuse me, you, you can have salt without prescribed limit was very generous on his part. And he said, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? And so his reason for doing all of this is to be on the good side uh, of Ezra's God, the God of the Bible. And we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nephinim, or servants of this house of God. And so he, everyone that was involved in the service of the temple had tax-exempt uh, status. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as you know, as know the laws of your God and teach those uh, who do not know them. So he says, Ezra, I want you to go there and I want you to establish a society. I want you to establish a system of law and order uh, in that area that is based upon the word of your God. So here is a king. Interesting enough. Excuse me. Here is a king who we don't know how much of the Bible he knows, but he knows enough of the Bible that he sees in Ezra's life that he's impressed by it. Again, our lives are always speaking the Bible to people, whether we are able to quote the verses to them or not, uh, given the you know, confines of the situation. And, and so he recognizes that, hey, what I see in this guy and what I see in the men and women associated with him, I want that to characterize the people that are at the farthest reaches of my kingdom. Because he's trying to hold on to power. He wants a stable situation. And when he looked at the quality of the person that the word of God produced, he said, you go duplicate that out there. And I'll be happy to have that happen. Here's, here's Artaxerxes, I mean, a historical figure, an amazing historical figure, not always the greatest guy in the whole wide world. And he, this is his desire, is that his citizens would be fashioned by the word of God. And then you look in the United States of America today, where there is a, a disdain toward the word of God, a resistance to the word of God and its effectiveness in changing human life. And so just the polar opposite uh, of, of appreciation related to, uh, to the word of God. So this is what he wanted them to go and do. And whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, uh, set, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be by death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. And so he gives the decree, but he gives some teeth for it as well. You can enforce the law of your God all the way uh, to the point of, of the death penalty. And then Ezra, recognizing that this was a blessing from the Lord and uh, wanting to not only enjoy the, the, this uh, decree given by 
uh, Artaxerxes to him the first time. Now he's going to enjoy it the second time by praising the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. And he recognized that God was behind all of this to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. It's a great way to live. To recognize the Lord behind all of our blessings that allows us to enjoy our blessings in a way that we would not otherwise get to bless them. It's a great example that Ezra shows to us. So he's not merely a, you know, theological academic. This guy's got a real personal current relationship with God. And so I was encouraged by virtue of this degree as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Well, we will stop there uh, tonight and we will look to finish the book next week. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. You know, one of the things about Ezra, he's going to get to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, everybody's going to realize a whole new standard of godliness has arrived on the scene. That we don't know anything about. I mean, it was like a guy coming from the major leagues to head down into Pop Warner football. And and one of the things that we want to take away from here tonight, even as we've sung and drawn closer to the Lord, even as we're here tonight for the purpose of drawing closer to the Lord, never stop growing. Never, never, never stop growing in our relationship with the Lord until we leave this body behind and we see Him face to face to be as strong spiritually and as mature spiritually as we can possibly be not just in the world but among God's people God's people are not the standard for spirituality Corinth was a church that was filled with all kinds of Christians but there was very little spirituality there Paul said those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise because the comparison in terms of what maturity looks in our life is not another Christian is what does the Bible say about that. So the importance of continuing to grow and to grow and to grow. And I don't care what the standard becomes in the world for conduct. I don't care what the standard becomes in professing Christianity. You and I keep growing. So that God can take us in the same manner that he took Ezra, put us in a situation, and then we will challenge even God's people to a greater greatness and a greater vision than they even realized was possible. Don't put limitations on our walk with the Lord, our influence for God, the plans that he's got for our lives. And so this guy by the name of Ezra, he's a little bit overlooked in the Old Testament. 
But he's a great figure in the Bible, a great brother in the Lord, and a great one to learn so much from. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time getting introduced to Ezra tonight. And we certainly like everything that we see uh, in his life. And we, Lord, as we see what we've seen tonight and what we'll see next week, he's heading into a situation that is like in most churches. And so much to learn, Lord, from him as he goes into that context and is such a wonderful influence for you among your people. And we want to be that kind of influence. And I pray, Lord, we pray for one another tonight that if any of us have just stagnated in our walk with you or we feel like we know the Bible enough to, to get by and, and this, this sense of wanting to be great for you, to bring glory to you, if this has died in our lives in any way, Lord, and now we're just living out our three score and ten and looking to get out of here instead of growing and growing and growing in the things of you. We pray that you use Ezra tonight to bring us to repentance, to allow you to freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, to believe you for great things again in our lives, just like we did when we first started walking with you. And so we pray tonight that you would rebirth vision in people's lives. We pray that you freshly baptize with the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that you bring freshness to individual lives, new direction, dust off what needs to be dust off in any of our lives. And then, Lord, give us the grace to aspire for greatness to your glory. And I pray, Lord, we pray for one another that not one of us would leave this room tonight as a Christian with any standard lower than that. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen.